Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. This is the hundredth episode. For me, it's been a nice path, and I hope you are enjoying the episodes and are finding them useful for your writing. The hundredth episode. When I'm done recording this episode, I might throw myself a party. I'll have a Diet Coke and I'll give Jack some temptation cat treats. What a party it'll be. I like coming across examples of the power of fiction, where a novel or a story changes someone's life. I'm reading Walter Isaacson's new biography of Elon Musk. When Musk was a teenager, he was a big reader, and he found the philosophical works of Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Schopenhauer. Walter Isaacson writes, this had the effect of, of turning Musk's confusion into despair. Musk later said, I do not recommend reading Nietzsche as a teenager. Walter Isaacson writes, Fortunately, he was saved by science fiction, that wellspring of wisdom for game-playing kids with intellects on hyperdrive. He plowed through the entire sci-fi section in his school and local libraries, then pushed the librarians to order more. One of Musk's favorites was Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh, uh, Harsh Mistress, a novel about a lunar penal colony. It is managed by a supercomputer nicknamed Mike that is able to acquire self-awareness and a sense of humor. The computer sacrifices its life during a rebellion at the penal colony. The book explores an issue that would become central to Musk's life. Will artificial intelligence develop in ways that benefit and protect humanity, or will machines develop intentions of their own and become a threat to humanity? Other of Musk's favorites included Isaac Asimov's robot stories. And here is Walter Isaacson. The science fiction book that most influenced Musk's wonder years was Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The jaunty and wry tale helped shape Musk's philosophy and added a dollop of droll humor to his serious mien. The Hitchhiker's Guide... Musk says, helped me out of my existential depression, and I soon realized it was amazingly funny in all sorts of ways. That's Elon Musk quoted by Walter Isaacson. Novels changed and helped Elon Musk. Maybe you and I are working on a short story or a novel right now that will hugely change readers, and, and maybe one reader in particular it will change, who will go on to maybe change the world, helped and inspired by our writing. It's a nice thought for us writers. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I 
toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. Have you ever found yourself in the zone when writing? It's also called the flow. As I mentioned, I'm reading uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk, and Isaacson writes, When Musk was focused on, a work, on work issues, he went into a zone like he, had in, like he had back in grade school where he was completely unresponsive. That's uh, Walter Isaacson. Uh, I've read other biographies and other uh, great people get into the zone. Isaac Newton was so focused on his work that he often forgot to eat a meal. Uh, the basketball legend Michael Jordan has said, I feel it when the game starts. You just start getting on a roll. Everything that you do is working. You get steals. Your offensive game is working. You just take control of it. You're in tune and everything that's going on. You control the tempo. You control everything. It's like you can do anything. Author Candace Havens, who's written for Harlequin and Berkeley, has said, once I get in the zone, sometimes I can't type fast enough. I took two full years off from writing fiction to focus on editing. It's been hard to get back in it, but last weekend I, quote, accidentally wrote 40 pages. Uh, let me quote from a Washington Post article by Jessica Wapner. In the 1960s, Psychologist Abraham Maslow became the first academic to write about what he called peak experiences, moments of elation that come from pushing ourselves in challenging tasks. Psychologist Michael Zeksentemahelye called it flow. Psychologists have since amassed a wealth of data on it, how it works and why it matters. In the 1960s, Zik Zentemahelye noticed many artists kept working despite hunger or fatigue when the painting was going well. The promise of fame or, fame or fortune wasn't the motivation. It was the work itself. It felt good. Dancers, composers, and others practicing a singular skill followed the same pattern. Uh, the flow is when someone is fully immersed in an activity and is feeling energetic and focused. And it, it can also alter a person's sense of time. Kendra Cherry, in the website Very Well Mind, talks about what you can do to increase the chances of getting to the flow. Here, she sets out some strategies. The first is set clear goals. And she said in his book, Zik Sentimahaly explains that flow is likely to occur when someone is faced with a task that has clear goals that require specific responses. A game of chess is a good example, he says, of when the flow state might occur. 
the player has very specific goals and responses. He's allowing attention to be focused entirely on the game during the play. And Kendra uh, Cherry goes on to say, eliminate distractions. It's more difficult to experience flow if things are if there are things in your environment competing for your attention, try reducing distractions so you can fully focus on the task at hand. And she adds another element, add an element of challenge. She says, flow also happens when a person's skills are fully involved in overcoming a challenge that is just about manageable. So it acts as a magnet for learning new skills and increasing challenges. Uh, Zik Santa Mahaley says, if challenges are too low, one gets back to flow by increasing them. If challenges are too great, one can return to the flow state by learning new skills. And the last thing of things on the list that'll help us get into the zone is to choose a pursuit we enjoy. We aren't likely to achieve the flow if we're doing an activity we dislike. So from all this, how to get into the flow, set a clear goal, eliminate disruptions, make it a challenge, make sure we are enjoying the task. It seems to me that we writers can get into the flow by closing the door, uh, turning off social media feeds and getting away from the internet, uh, determining we will write one scene, or maybe determining we will write three pages. Uh, we should try to get into the flow. It hasn't happened to me often, but it's remarkable and wonderful when it does. It's exhilarating. Some years ago, I visited Thailand to research a novel, a novel I was writing. Uh, let me mention an odd thing that happened to me, and I mean really odd. I was walking along a nice path in a park near Bangkok, uh, grass covered most of the grounds, and there were trees alongside the gravel walkway. It was a lovely place. I was walking entirely minding my own business. It was sunny. There were flowers everywhere. Uh, there might have been a creek nearby. I was enjoying myself so, myself so much I might have been whistling. I don't remember. But I do remember this. Holy cow. From seemingly nowhere, a monkey jumped onto my back. And I don't mean metaphorically. I mean a real monkey landed on my back. I think he came from a nearby tree. Uh, the thing instantly crawled around to my front and, and stared at me in the face, his muzzle two inches from my nose. This monkey was no circus monkey or Ed Sullivan monkey. It was a, it was a truckload of ugly it had a wrinkled snout and brown-green teeth and patchy fur and little eyes that my memory insists were red, though uh, that likely can't be true. And it clung to me like a barnacle. It was big, too, maybe 30 pounds. I, I thought this was funny and fun for about two seconds, and then I thought I'd lift it off me and lower it to the ground. A mathematical problem immediately presented itself. I only had two hands with which to grab the monkey to try to get him off me, and the monkey had five things with which to cling to me. Two hands, two feet, and a tail. It was like 
pulling taffy. It, it didn't matter which of his limbs I peeled off. He had others to cling to me. Uh, this struggle lasted 60 seconds, which seemed like a month. I don't know if monkeys can laugh, but my memory has this monkey laughing. And then a fellow, a, a Thai man in shorts and a white t-shirt and sandals with teeth no better than the monkeys, walked out onto the path from behind a tree, smiling at me, and I instantly knew what was going on. I didn't say anything except, how much? He replied, he was still smiling, a hundred bots which is about $3. Uh, the monkey let me reach for my wallet, of course. I handed the man the bills, he, and he flicked his wrist, and the monkey jumped off from me to him. I went back to my Bangkok hotel room, I, to the hotel room, and took a shower. And the trouble with this episode in my writing life is that I don't think it made me any wiser. What are experiences for to make a person wiser? Not this one. Not this one. What's to learn from my walk in a Bangkok park? Well, don't let monkeys jump onto my back. But I already knew that. And I imagine you do too. I didn't need to be in Thailand to learn it. I spoke in an earlier episode about how to show rather than tell about feelings of affection. How about the opposite? How can we show disgust and loathing and other negative emotions? I want to mention some examples. As you know from listening to these episodes, showing and telling are terms of art in writing. They mean something specific. Showing is almost always better than telling. Showing presents evidence to the reader, while telling just tells the reader a conclusion, tells him what to believe. Showing reveals while telling explains. My favorite sentences to keep showing and telling clear in my mind, and, and you've heard these before, he scratched his arm is showing. His arm itched is telling. Showing is more involving for the reader and the, as the reader gathers evidence and makes his or her own conclusions. So how do we show disgust. We're going to mention some negative emotions. Uh, she was disgusted is telling. It's also interior monologue, which we try to avoid. She wrinkled her nose is showing, and it's action. Wrinkling, wrinkling her nose is something for the reader to look at. How about anger? She was angry is telling, of course. But try, I did my best, he said, Molly stared at him, then walked away. This shows Molly's anger. He was contemptuous of him. Well, that's telling. She smiled in a thin way and said, I don't buy it. In the context of the scene, the reader will know she is contemptuous. She was afraid is telling. How about showing her hands trembled? Or she, or she gulped and stepped back. There's a lot of ways to show fear. Irritation is good in fiction. Max was irritated at his boss is telling. Max tapped his fingers on the desk is showing. In the context of the scene, as the scene we've written, the reader will know that Max's irritation, evident 
in the tapping of his fingers is aimed at his boss. We're talking about how to show rather than tell negative emotions. How about this one? Uh, exasperation is, is good in a story. Here's telling. He exasperated her. How about showing? She looked at him, then rolled her eyes. He was frustrated when the padlock combination wouldn't work. Is telling. How about this? Showing. When the lock wouldn't work, w rather, when the lock wouldn't open, he slammed it against the locker. That's action. It's showing that he's frustrated. Here's telling. She despaired of never seeing him again. How about this instead, this showing? She watched him drive away and closed her eyes and breathed deeply. In the scene, as you, the writer, have set it up, the reader will know that she is despairing of losing him. How about this telling? Now that her son and daughter were both in college, she was always lonely. Well, that's an important emotion, maybe a strong point in our story. But it's, it's telling. How about this for showing? When she closed the front door, the sound echoed in the house. Then nothing but silence. She glanced at the photos of Lily and Ben on the fireplace mantel. That's a nice scene, and it shows she's lonely. Giving the context of the scene, the reader will get it. Here's the last one. Here's telling. Jenna looked at Brittany as the football queen tiara was put on Brittany's head and was intensely jealous. This is showing. Jenna looked at Brittany as the football queen tiara was put on Brittany's head, and Jana scowled and turned away. That's a nice scene, set out the, setting out the evidence for the reader about being jealous. Uh, so those, those are some examples of showing rather than telling emotions. Here's a good thought. Every time we writers are contemplating mentioning an emotion in our story, we should ask, can we show the emotion instead of tell the telling the reader about it? I expect we can show the emotions every single time. And showing the emotion allows the reader to gather evidence and come to her own conclusion, which is more satisfying for the reader than just being told what to think. And one of the reasons showing is better than telling is that when we writers show, it's usually action and dialogue rather than interior monologue. Here's a good idea. I, I have one good idea every day, and this is today's. In our story plot, try to avoid meetings, especially big meetings. Uh, new writers often want to have a meeting scene where the team gets together, where the reader sees all everybody in the same room. The the characters will the reader has met or will soon have a role in the play a role to play in the story, and then the characters at the meeting lay pipe. In other words, they explain things. The troubles with meetings are many. They are hard to write at least in an interesting way. And the reason they are hard to write is that if a character is put into a scene, into a meeting, 
there must be a reason for him to be there, which means the writer has to give him something to do. If the character doesn't do anything at the meeting, why is he there? And uh, a writer should periodically remind readers what a character looks like. So if the writer thinks the reader may have forgotten who the character is or what she looks like, the reader is reminded at the meeting. Another problem with meetings is that most often in a, most often in a meeting, there's nothing interesting to watch for the reader. Action is always, almost always, the most interesting element of a novel. At a meeting, the characters sit or maybe they stand. They, they don't move because each is listening and talking to each other. They're an inert group with, with no action. Uh, another problem with writing a meeting scene is that writers often put meetings into their story as a way of giving out backstory and explanation. And as we know, too much backstory and explanation in, in any form, including meetings, can ruin the pace of a novel. And another problem with meetings in fiction, new writers tend to put their meetings in dull settings, such as a conference room or a classroom, where, where the setting isn't allowed to contribute interest to the story. Let me read a meeting scene that I just wrote. Uh, I had some fun writing it, and it's something of an exaggeration, but not much of one. A meeting is a meeting. A conference is a conference. Uh, a gab fest is a gab fest. Here's the scene. Peterson lowered himself into the chair. Everybody take seats. Let's get going. Chairs scraped as the team gathered and sat around the table. With a laugh, the pickpocket Eddie Felstrom handed George Millenkoff his wallet, which Malenkoff hadn't noticed was missing. Festrum wore a gray wool watch cap and a loose jacket that had half a dozen pockets. His grin was permanent. Milinkoff smiled. It was the third time that day Felstrom had lifted his wallet. Milinkoff said, My wallet better have that twenty that was in it. He didn't bother to check. Milinkoff's bald head reflected the fluorescent light. His nose was almost as wide as his mouth. Benny Blomstrom's pistol clinked against the table as he scooted toward the table in his chair. The pistol was in a shoulder holster. He asked Peterson, Where's Red? As if on cue, Red Wilson came through the door. His shirt was pinned up at the left sleeve as he'd lost an arm in Iraq. His face must have been drawn with a T-square as it was so blocky. He dipped his chin at Peterson and took a chair. Lisa Smith sat at the end of the table. She rattled the coral beads on her necklace. What's the story on your missing arm today, Red? I lost it working at Ringling Brothers when I was a teen. A tiger took it off. A horrible experience, as you might guess. A smattering of laughter. Wilson always had a new version of losing his arm, and Lisa Smith always asked him about it. One time it had been a disease called mortal psoriasis that had rotted his arm away. Let's cut the nonsense, Alexandra Spiegel said, her voice ruined by a lifetime of cigarettes. I didn't come here for jokes. Get on with it. The fingertips of her right hand were stained tobacco brown, and she smelled of both Chanel No. 5 and Lucky Strikes. Peterson cleared his throat. We won't wait any longer. Then through the door came the McGilvery twins, one male, one female. They looked nothing like each other except both 
had apparently had orthodontic braces when younger as their smiles were perfect. Sonia McGilvery asked, Alexandra, how's your cough? You hacked up anything lately? You'd better see a doctor. Charming as usual, aren't we, Sonia? Alexandra asked. Well, I can't write any more of this because it makes me wince. See what the writer, me, is doing here? He's setting up the big meeting. Uh, This sounds like a caper novel. Uh, We meet all the players, one after another, as they enter the room and sit down at the table. Most say something they think is snappy. Uh, Most are briefly described. And the, the reader senses the meeting is going to go on for a long time with a lot of explanation and setup and backstory. Every character will say something and shift in her chair and clear her throat and on and on. It'll be hard to follow and almost impossible to make clear or interesting. It's a scene as a Rubik's Cube. Maybe in a novel we are writing, a meeting uh, is, uh, we're writing it, a meeting is like a sneeze. We, we can feel it coming in our plotting, but we can't do anything about it. That's how sneezes are like drum solos. We can hear them coming, but we can't do anything about it. So we gather all our characters together and write our scene, and we should resist it. Here's a thought. The strongest scenes usually have two characters in them. If we are writing a scene that has more than two, or heaven forfend four, five, or six or more in the scene, in our planned scene, we might revisit the plot and come up with something else. As you know, I've been enjoying uh, Mason Curry's book, Daily Rituals, where he sets out how creators work. Here's how Agatha Christie worked. Mason Curry writes, In her autobiography, Christie admitted that even after she had written ten books, she didn't really consider herself a bona fide author. When filling out forms that asked for her occupation, it never occurred to her to put down anything other than married woman. Uh, Quote, This is Agatha Christie. The funny thing is that I have little memory of the books I wrote just after my marriage. I suppose I was enjoying myself so much in ordinary living that writing was a task which I performed in spells and bursts. I never had a a definite place which was my place where I retired especially to write. Uh, That's Agatha Christie. Mason Curry goes on, This caused her endless troubles with journalists, who inevitably wanted to photograph the author at her desk. But there was no such place. Agatha Christie said, All I needed was a steady table and a typewriter. A marble-topped bedroom washstand table made a good place to write. The dining room table between meals was also suitable. Agatha Christie said, Many friends have said to me, I never know when you write your books because I never, I've never seen you writing or even seen you go away to write. I must behave rather as dogs do when they retire with a bone. They depart in a secretive manner and you do not see them again for an odd half hour. They return self-consciously with mud on their noses. I too, much of this, I feel much the same. I felt slightly embarrassed if I was going to write. Once I could get away, however, shut the door and get on, then I was able to go full speed ahead, completely lost in what I was doing. 
That's Agatha Christie. Boy, was she a good writer. That's the end of our episode. If you'd like to send me an email, my address is jimfayerseattle at gmail.com. I'm glad we were together for this episode. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.